Shalom and welcome to another teaching of Kingdom 101. My name is Hanson and I'm from Archippus Awakening. We are a ministry that is dedicated to the awakening of saints so that we may know and fulfill our God-given Kingdom assignments. And this is where Kingdom 101 fits right in. It's a Kingdom teaching where we revisit Kingdom foundations all over again. Our objectives are very, very simple. We want to know the King, we want to embrace the things of the Kingdom so that we can receive and fulfill our Kingdom assignments. Well, speaking of objectives, as I've already mentioned, our very, very first key point is to know the King. Well, we've reached a point in the Gospel of Matthew where the text today addresses this one point specifically, to know the King, to know Jesus. It is also a key alignment checkpoint for all who desire to discover assignments as well as to be on assignment. If you look at the structure of Matthew, it's divided simply into three parts. Now, today's text will bring us to the end of the second section of Matthew. Not only that, if you have been journeying with us, you will know that there are five discourses in the Gospel of Matthew. We've gone through one, two, and three, and this text also brings the third discourse to an end. In fact, the next time when we have a teaching again, we will begin a new section that brings us to a new discourse. So can you see our text today is such a climatic one. It converges the structures together and it brings us to a high point. I'm talking about Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 20. We're going to read the passage, we're going to pray, and we will get into the teaching immediately. So join me in the text, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 20. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you, Lord, for you have given us scriptures to guide us. You have not kept us alone that we try to figure things out by our own understanding. But I pray that by your word, through your Holy Spirit, you will speak to many who are listening and tuning in. Above all, we want to know Jesus. We want to know the Christ. We want to know our King. And so we bless you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, when you're in church long enough, you sort of learn to pick up the Christian language. I was born into a Christian family. I was raised in a Christian environment. 
So in terms of lingo and the words we use, it is not surprising that um, I know quite a bit and you probably too. But we learn how to speak Christians and words are very, very familiar. But the question is, do we understand the things that we say? And I suggest to you and submit to you that sometimes we can speak it so easily but not understand the context or even the weight and the meaning of what we are really saying. Don't laugh at me, but let me give you an example from my own journey. This word, hallelujah, is so familiar, isn't it? Uh, whenever we're happy, we'll shout hallelujah. But do you know that for a time, I didn't even understand what this word meant. I thought it was just a nice thing to shout, and it's just hallelujah. It would be a while later that I would then find out it actually meant praise the Lord. Like I said, don't laugh at me. I'm sure you have words you use that you may not be fully understanding the meaning either. How about another word called church? Now, this would surprise you, right? I mean, we talk about the church, we go to church, but many Christians don't understand what this word church actually means. Now, I know we keep telling people that church is not a building, but it's so hard to get that out of our minds, is it not, right? Because we still think that we go to this physical place called the church. It's kind of hard to let it sink in that we, the people, we are the church. Or for example, this word called kingdom. Now, I thought that this would be so familiar and so easily understood. I mean, we talk about it all the time. But only in recent years, when I try to help people understand um, this word called the kingdom, or when I say kingdom perspectives, I get a blank stare. I get this look you know, in the eye and they ask me, so what do you mean by kingdom? Um, can you define the kingdom? I ask them, and you'll be surprised. There are a lot of people who will be stuck even with that concept. Now, we are supposed to be people of the kingdom. We talk about the kingdom, sing about the kingdom, proclaim the kingdom, and yet not understand the kingdom. So you can see words you know, we use, but maybe we don't fully understand what they mean. Now, today I want to share one more word with you. This word called Christ. Now, what does this word mean? When I do my camps and I go for seminars, I'll challenge the congregation if I have the chance to dialogue with them. I will ask them, you know the word Christ, Jesus the Christ, or Jesus Christ, but what does it mean? And they'll put up their hand, they'll say, oh, it means Jesus. I say, well, no, it's, his, it's related to Jesus, but it does not mean Jesus. Oh, how about, how about Savior? Well, that's what the Christ does, you know, but that's not the meaning of the word. A redeemer? Yeah, same thing. You know, he does that, he redeems, but that's not the meaning of the word. How about healer? And so on and so forth. You know, and some even think, don't laugh at this, something is Jesus' surname, you know, Jesus Christ. Well, you can see what I'm trying to get at, right? We use this word Christ, um, but people don't understand what it means. Now, if we don't get the gist of it, or we don't fully understand the impact of the word Christ, then what does it mean then for us to be Christians? I mean, we are Christians. We take after this word called Christ. Let me help you out here. See, Christ is the Greek word of the Hebrew word Messiah. It means exactly the same thing. Christos, Mashiach, both mean the same thing. But what does it mean? What does it stand for? In the Hebrew, it simply means the anointed one. It's as straightforward as that, right? But what is the anointed one? Who were the people who were anointed? 
Now, in the Old Testament, there were three offices um, where the people, when they, before they assumed these offices, they would be anointed. They would be smeared with oil. Oil would be poured upon them and they would be anointed for that role. Now, these three offices were simply the prophet, the priest, and the king. Now, we are familiar with these titles. But in the Old Testament, each of these offices or each of these persons, uh, it would be temporary. Now, to the Jews, they would know that it's temporary. It's only for a season and a time. They were looking towards a time where the Messiah, capital M, the Anointed One, capital A, and the Christ, capital C, would come and He would rule and He would reign forever. Now, you and I know that this is talking about Jesus, right? He is the Christ, the Anointed One. Now, we have no problem with Him being the prophet of all prophets because He came to declare the things of God, even to foretell what might happen in time to come. Now, we have no problem also with Him as the priest of all priests because we know He is now today the great High Priest who represents us. But don't forget the last office because he is also the king of kings. That he will rule and reign and you don't get to vote him, you know. He just is. He is the king of all kings. So when we say that Jesus is the Christ, whenever that this title is proclaimed upon Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, to the Jews, they were looking for the king. It was a proclamation that Jesus is king. Now here comes the important question. I know Jesus is king, but the question is, is he your king? Now hang on, I know, you sing it, but do you mean it? Right? You say it, but do you live as if he is the Christ and he is the king? Well, my brothers and my sisters, Jesus can be many things to many people. He can be A, B, C, D, and all good things, great things, you know, good teacher, healer, redeemer, savior. But do you realize that if he is not king, all the other titles do not really matter. But if he is really truly king, and he is, but is he yours? Do you regard him as that? Then I ask you the next question. Is he then your point of reference? Or can I say, is he your person of reference? Now, cognitively, technically, theoretically, I know you're going to say yes. But how about personally and practically? You see, this is what we mean when we talk about an alignment check. If you don't have a reference point, it is difficult for you to check your alignment. And Jesus must be that reference point. He has to be the Christ, the King for you. Now, we just read in a passage in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 20. And this is a high point, a climatic point in the Gospel of Matthew. And it is so because there's a proclamation of Jesus as the King. We're going to explore this passage and dive in a more, more deeply into the points down there. And I hope you'll stay with me and have your own alignment check as we go through this teaching. Let me present to you the backdrop first. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi. Now, where is this Caesarea of Philippi? The last time we encountered Jesus, we know that he was you know, in the land of Israel and had this encounter, this confrontation with the spiritual and the religious leaders. 
But of course, you know how that went. You know, they left um, Jesus, you know, such a bad taste in the mouth, right? Jesus left them and they crossed the lake. And on that lake, Jesus had a teaching with the disciples once more. They crossed the Sea of Galilee. Of course, we call it the lake also. They headed up north into actually a pagan territory. And this place is called Caesarea Philippi. Now, originally, the name was Panias. It was then later renamed um, into Caesarea Philippi by Philip, the ruler of that region, the Tetra. And he named it in honor of himself as well as the Caesar at that time. So Caesarea Philippi. Now, originally it was Panias, as I mentioned, because it was the center of worship for a Greek god by the name of Pan. That's why Panias. And this Greek god, you may have seen per, uh, pictures of this god. He's half man and half goat. And in fact, they were so afraid of uh, this god at night, you know, they would hear sounds coming from this kind of a region. And so they dedicated this place to the worship of this god. Now against a rocky cliff, you will see shrines carved out, and that is for them to worship this god. In fact, there's a cave there, they call it the Cave of Pan. And alternatively, they understood it to be the gates of Hades or the gates of hell because it was a portal to the underworld. Other gods would gather from time to time and they would have a party down there. So in this region, there would be lots of idolatrous worship and also many sexual rituals. And some, I understand, men with goats even and goat with men. Now, that's how terrible this entire place was. It was a pagan territory, and Jesus brings his disciples there almost like for a road trip, an excursion, an object lesson, and he picks this spot specifically to ask a very, very critical question. What are people saying about me? What are they saying, passing around, you know, what's that thing, and uh, exchanging uh, notes, you know, what are they really saying about me? Who am I to them? And the disciples answered him and said, well, some say you're like John the Baptist, right? You know, like, for example, Herod thought uh, Jesus was John the Baptist resurrected. Or some say you're like Elijah, and some say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets, because you move in such power and you speak in such a way uh, that they've never heard before in these recent times. And Jesus then does not dispute any of these proclamations or titles or allusions, but he, he looks at the disciples and then say, but who do you say that I am? Now, I, I know what they are saying, but in, in local terms, you le? <laughs> what about you? What about you? And in the Greek, the word you is, is emphatic. It's also plural. In other words, it's not directed to one person. It's directed to all of the disciples. Who do you say that I am? Who am I to you? Now, I don't care what other people are saying about me, but what do you say? And of course, you know, Peter, always the impulsive one, and the first one to put up his hand, and he just declares and out of his mouth, you are the Christ. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, what is he really saying? If you remember just a little bit earlier, I was explaining this to you. He wasn't, just, he wasn't just proclaiming a title upon Jesus, you know. He was really just declaring, saying, Lord Jesus, you are the King. I mean, you are the one that's to come. You are the anointed one, right? We've been waiting for this person. Now you are the one. 
Now, you're not any other person. You are the Son. You have got this special relationship with God. And this is a living God. Now, this is the Jewish idiom and phrase that uh, uh, pits God who is alive against those who are dead. In other words, the dead idols who have eyes but they don't see, they have ears but they don't hear. Now, a little side note. In the book of Matthew, in case you didn't realize, this is the first direct acknowledgement of Jesus as the Christ in this book of Matthew. Now, it would take Matthew 16 chapters to record this because the very first time he alludes to this, he writes it in Matthew chapter 1, verse 16, which talks about Jesus as the Christ. Now, that was just a statement. But Matthew will develop, and thank you for staying with me, lesson after lesson, you know, point after point, until we come to this high point in Matthew chapter 16, where Matthew then records Jesus asking Peter, and Peter declaring very clearly, acknowledging, Jesus, you are the Christ. Let me pause for a moment here and ask you, what would be your answer? Who is Jesus to you? Would you, like Peter, without hesitation, just shout, you are the Christ, Lord, you are the Son of the living God? I hope so, and that would be a correct answer. And Peter gave a very impressive declaration. And as important and as accurate as that answer would have been, I want to focus in this teaching Jesus' response to Peter. And I think we can learn so much more about what Jesus is trying to say to Peter as well as to the disciples. And his response matters a lot more. So stay with me. Just four simple points to share with you, and I hope that it will bless you and it will encourage you. So point number one, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 17, Jesus answered Peter. He said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And the point I want to bring to you is this word called revelation. See, Jesus wasn't looking for the right answer. Jesus was more concerned with the right revelation. You know, many times people will tell us things and we are excited with testimonies and stories and say, wow, this is really good, amen to all these things. Or we can be asked a certain question and we can get the right Bible answer. We can score A plus in a Bible quiz. But it's not about the right answers. It's about the right revelation. And I can teach so many things, and I pray that you are encouraged. But you see, flesh and blood, this guy down here, can't reveal anything to you if the Lord does not come upon that, if our Heavenly Father does not bring about that awakening, that opening of the eyes, the revelation of His Son. And I will give you an illustration. You know, I'm a parent, and there are many parents listening in. I realize one thing. Fathers, and mothers also, they love to reveal their children, right? They love to point to their kids. Have you gone to a place before, you know, and then you're talking to the parent and then the child happens to come into the conversation and he goes, oh, have you met? This is my son. <laughs> oh, look at that person down there. That one over there, that's my daughter. I encountered this when I visited a church to preach one day. And there I was seated right in front and the pastor's wife sat there next to me. And when the band started to play, she nudged me and she pointed to the drummer and she said, that's my son. 
<laughs> you see, fathers and mothers, parents, we love to point out our children. We love to reveal our kids. I hope it's for good reason. Right? And our Heavenly Father does exactly the same thing. At the baptism of Jesus, He said, Look, this is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. At the Mount of Transfiguration, where we'll get there soon, This is my Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to Him. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, we are told that Jesus is the expressed image Right? The, the one that would reveal the Father. And that's why God the Father wants to reveal Jesus as His Son. Because when He points out His Son, He knows the Son will point out the Father. See, we don't want just to have the right answers. We want to have the right revelation. And it's not people, men and women, who can give that to us. Not flesh and blood. You can have all the teachings you want. But if you miss the revelation from our Heavenly Father, you have missed everything. The Apostle Paul said this in Galatians chapter 1, verse 15. It pleased God to reveal His Son in me that I might preach Him. You see, Paul was so learned. He was such a, an excellent theologian. He knew the Old Testament inside out. But until God the Father revealed Jesus the Son to him, he went about it in such a wrong way. And that's why he prayed for the church in Ephesus, that God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, of Jesus, the Christ, His Son. I pray that for you right now as you listen to this. You don't just want a good teaching. You don't want the right answers. You want the right revelation. Now, if you've already encountered this, praise the Lord. But you've never had, if you have never had a revelation of who Jesus is, I encourage you right now, ask the Father to reveal the Son to you by the Holy Spirit. He will gladly oblige. But even if you have had a revelation before, would you agree with me? We can all do with a fresh revelation of Jesus. I want more and more of Him. And the more He shows me, the more I realize how great it is and how wonderful He is and how beautiful He is. Friends, today we have so many teachings. You can click on the net. You can go to so many online services. And I'm happy that you are doing that to listen to right teaching. But pray for revelation. Ask for revelation. Because without revelation, Nothing is going to matter. Point number two is what I call identification. See, after Peter declares to Jesus, and Jesus says to Peter that it is my Father who has given you this revelation, in verse 18 he says, Now I say to you, you are Peter. And the key is this. When we have a right revelation of Jesus, when we know who He is, that He is the Christ, we then know who we are in relation to who He is. I hope you're hearing this, right? You see, when we have a revelation of who He is, we then have a revelation of who we are in relation to who He is. Now, that's alignment language, is it not? We need a reference point. Otherwise, what are you checking with? Who are you aligning to? What are you aligning with? 
my dear brothers and sisters, you are not identified by what you do, by which church you worship at, or which ministry you serve in, or how much you are doing. You are identified by the King and with the King. And that's why you need to have a revelation of who He is first. When you rightly identify the Christ, you will then be rightly identified by the Christ and with the Christ. Let me explain this a little bit to you. You see, Jesus said to Peter, you are Peter. And that word just means stone or a little rock, Petros. Now, this must have impacted Peter so much. It's like, can you imagine? This must have stayed with him. He looks at Jesus first. He reveals Jesus correctly in that sense. And Jesus then reveals who he is in relation to who Jesus is. Now, this made such an impact upon Peter because later in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 onwards, he writes, coming to Jesus as to a living stone, rejected indeed by man, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones, you're being built up into a spiritual house. Now, Peter didn't just hold this title for himself. Now, I know some people think that this is specifically only personally for Peter. I beg to differ, right? Because look at this. He was called stone by Jesus, but later he told everyone else, you too are living stones. Now, if I'm a stone, I'm not the only one. You are also a living stone. And these stones are useless by itself. We will be misplaced and misaligned if there is not first a cornerstone. All stones must take reference from the cornerstone. But you see, it requires a revelation without which it makes no sense. Otherwise, we are trying to align with ourselves. You know, we're trying to say, oh, you first or me first or you better or I'm better. It's wrong. And that's why Jesus had to wait for Peter to declare him correctly as the king first. With that revelation, Jesus then can give that identification to Peter to say, now you know who I am. I want you to know who you are in relation to who I am. Now, one other small point here. Do you know that this is not the first time that Jesus called Peter a stone? If you look at John chapter 1, verse 42, the first moment that Peter met Jesus, the Lord looked at him and said, you shall be called Kephas, which is translated stone. That's an Aramaic. He was like, huh? Here I am seeing you the first time. And you call me stone? <laughs> I'm, I'm quite offended, actually. You know Why did you call me stone? He had no understanding. Why? Because he hadn't had the revelation. And I think that many times in the church, when we are preaching, we're trying to tell people who they are and what their identity is. I mean, it's wonderful. I can pronounce nice things upon you, and you can feel very encouraged. But would you agree? If you don't first have a revelation of who Jesus is, me telling you your identity in Jesus makes no sense. You will be like, okay, sounds good. What positive thinking is it? Doesn't make sense. So can you see? You need to have revelation first. It is only when you begin to know who he is, then you then will know who you are. Revelation and then identification. And this leads us to the third point called foundation. Jesus goes on, I also say to you that you are Peter, 
And on this rock, Petra, I will build my church. Now, there's still so much debate who or what this rock is. And of course, many attribute it to the person of Peter. And of course, he holds a very uh, prominent position in certain traditions. Well, I'm not trying to take any credit away from Peter. But if you are following me right now, I believe if you look at the revelation and the identification, if you can hold these two together, it's going to give you a rock-solid foundation. I see this as the rock of revelation and, and identification. You cannot split these two things apart. On this foundation, just imagine, stay with me for a while. I believe Jesus will build up His people. Now, not only that, if you know who Jesus is and who we are in relation to Him, do you remember in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27, Jesus spoke about someone who built his house upon the rock. I call this the rock of obedience, right? And it's only possible if you know the Christ and you know your place in relation to the Christ. Now you want to obey Him. You want to fulfill your assignment. This foundation of revelation and identification will give you that rock of obedience so that you can know and also fulfill your kingdom assignment. Now, Jesus then says, now on this rock, I'm going to build my church. This is again a key passage because this is the very first time we see the word church mentioned in the gospel and in the New Testament. Now, let me quickly say the word ecclesia. Ecclesia is a Greek word. It's not a Christian word. We just Christianize it. Jesus was not referring to an organization or an institution. He didn't tell Peter and the disciples, you know, after this, you know, go register with the government, you know, uh, make sure there's this uh, a sheet of paper and there's this uh, a place that gives you a place to worship. He wasn't referring to anything that was organizational or institutional. In the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Ecclesia was used, the word, uh, referring to the congregation of Israel. So Ecclesia has always been about the people of God or the people of the kingdom. So what Jesus was proclaiming is simply this. I will build my church. Listen, I will build my own community, my own people. Now, I'm the Messiah. This will be my messianic community. I am the king. This will be a kingdom community. I am the Christ. These will be my followers called Christians. That's what Christians mean. People who follow the Christ, who belong to the Christ, who serve the Christ. And it's as straightforward as that. Jesus says, you have that revelation, you have the identification, that's all we need. This foundation will be rock solid. On this rock, my kingdom, my community, my people will be built up and I will be the one that will ensure that it will happen. Now, if you look forward to Acts Peter, who was the de facto leader of the group of people, there were about 120 disciples gathered in the upper room. Now, that would be the kingdom community. Now, if you divide it, 12 times 10 would be uh, um, the number about 120. Now, why 12 times 10? Because 12 tribes 
times 10 men in those days. If you have 10, it's considered a community, and each tribe represented by 10. If we put it all together, this whole community there, that almost 120 or there about 120, this would represent the new Israel, the new messianic people, the new kingdom people that Jesus wanted to build. But do you remember? There were only 11 leaders, 11 apostles only. And that's why when they prayed, the Holy Spirit then would have led um, Peter by the scriptures as they prayed um, to replace Judas, to put one more in. Why? Because 12 would be a kingdom core, would be representative of the kingdom governance and the kingdom principles. And it's only after when they put all things together according to the timing of God, then the spirit of the king was given to this messianic church, community, the ecclesia, the people of the Christ. And they went out there to change the world. You see, the ecclesia is the true Christian community. And if Peter would have been representative of church leadership, would you imagine with me, what if every leader, it doesn't matter which level of leadership you are in, what if every leader had both the revelation and the identification of Jesus as the king and who we are as his kingdom people? What a foundation that would be, right? That we won't be looking at organizational agendas and institutional branding and so on. No, it's about the kingdom, it's about the Christ. Now, let's press it further, right? Push it further. Imagine if every believer, every believer had a revelation of the Christ and knew his or her identification as the people of the Christ. What a church this would be, right? Rock-solid foundation, unshakable. And that's why the Lord then said, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Remember, this was the backdrop for Jesus' question. I mean, Jesus was truly creative and artistic. I mean, look at what he was, he was, uh, he was there standing. You know, look at the backdrop that might have been behind him, right? And the disciples would be looking, it's like, whoa, gates of Hades, you know, are you sure this is the right place or not? And Jesus is saying, don't you worry. If you've got the right foundation with the revelation and the identification, Nothing is going to stand in the way. And the gates of Hades would have been a spiritual portal. And so Jesus was saying the darkness, the powers and the principalities, these guys will not be able to overcome you or will not even away, uh, be able to defend against the onslaught of the kingdom. At the same time, the word or the phrase gates of Hades is also idiomatic in a Jewish understanding. It actually refers to death. And so Jesus is saying, the powers of death, physical death, will not overcome the church. They can take you, they can persecute you, they can kill you, but the church will still move forward. The kingdom of God will still advance. And so friends, whatever life deals you, Whatever the challenge may be, however difficult your assignments may be, if you have that revelation and the identification on this rock of what a foundation, you will stand 
Jesus will keep building his church and his messianic community. His kingdom will go forward. It will enlarge in its territory. But do you have that revelation and identification that you will have this foundation? We come to the last point called authorization. And the Lord goes on. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, keys are symbolic of authority. But keys are also issued and given on the basis of revelation. Now, think about this. We've got children, young children growing up. And for a while, you wouldn't give them keys to the house. Right? I mean, you, they might lose it or they might do something with it or they may just bring any person in or whatever. But when they grow up and they reach a certain stage of maturity, you say, okay, now you can handle keys now. I'm giving you. You can um, come in, you can go out as you please, but understand the rules of the house. And it's the same with these keys, these authorities of the church as well as the kingdom. I can tell you that Peter didn't receive the keys at that point in time. Jesus says, I will give you. He didn't say when, right? He didn't receive it in Matthew 16. I believe he received it on the day of Pentecost, right? And we'll come back to this in a little while. But what are these keys of the kingdom? Now, the allusion here is to the ancient manner of binding together twin doors of houses, or gates, you know, with a chain and a padlock um, that is there. So you either lock it or you loose it, right? You bind it or you loose it. So once you have this picture now, the keys of the kingdom is often related to the key of the house of David, right? Because God made David this promise, he has this house, he has this kingdom, and of course it will be everlasting by the time Jesus comes. In Isaiah chapter 22, verses 22, the key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder, so he shall open and no one shall shut, and he shall shut and no one shall open. Now this goes all the way through the Davidic line until it comes to Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. That's the culmination. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the keys of David. Who is this? Jesus, the Christ, the King. He who opens and no one shuts. And listen, and shuts and no one opens. Now, in other words, it's not open for every, all the time, you know. There are times that it will shut. So the binding and loosing as a picture is about opening and shutting, locking and unlocking. It speaks about the entrance into the kingdom of God. But what would qualify someone to come into the kingdom? Well, let's answer these questions. Firstly, the kingdom is always about God's holiness and God's righteousness according to His will and His ways. Now, you and I know that if that's the standard, no one can make it. And that is why we are so thankful that it is by grace, through faith, that when we are hidden in Christ, saved by Him, enabled by the Holy Spirit, we are holy in Christ, we are righteous in Christ. And in that, we have access into the kingdom of God. But it doesn't end there. Because sin runs counter to God's nature of holiness and His ways of righteousness. 
Now, does the Bible then say, oh, don't worry about your sin now, no, everything is taken care of? Not really, you've got to read the text. And so a couple of chapters ahead, Matthew chapter 18 specifically, deals with sin in the church, the people of God, the people of the kingdom. Now, if you and I are in the church, we will think these guys are saved. No, the Lord will then teach the leaders. You have now authority to release and loose someone from their sins when they repent, right? John chapter 20, 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now, we can help someone in their journey of salvation on the process and as they move towards the entry finally into the kingdom of God. But you see, if one persists in sin and is non-repentant, do you know that the church, the leadership, and even collectively, we have the authority to declare this person bound in his own sin and therefore shut the door to the kingdom of God? Now, I know very few people talk about this, and you might want to question me too, and I'll say, please, go check this out. You know, Go read the text once more. But I appeal to the Apostle Paul, you realize he was writing to the church. He made very bold statements about those who will not inherit the kingdom. You can read the text in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 8 to 9. You can read Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. And Paul lists all these things and the um, works or the practices of some of these who are church people, saved people, presumably, and they say, don't you know, do you not know that these will not inherit the kingdom of God? And of course, he doesn't tell you what's the point where it is the cutoff. And I think that's where we have to hold many of these things carefully that we can walk in grace, by grace, confident of the Lord's love for us, but not presuming upon his grace that has been extended to us. Another key kingdom trait is about faithfulness. And if you read in Revelations chapter 3, verse 8, Jesus then said to the church in Philadelphia, I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Now Jesus is talking about faithfulness. And if you are faithful unto the Lord, then that door is held open for you because you will not compromise. And I believe there will come a time where our faith will be tested and will be challenged. Now contrast this with the next church called Laodicea. Now God, Jesus, opens the door for Philadelphia, but Laodicea shuts the door to Jesus, right? The Lord stands outside the door and knocks, but the church that is lukewarm doesn't want to consider all the things that we are talking about. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Not everyone enters the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Matthew chapter 25, 14 to 30. The parable of the talents and the faithful and unfaithful servants. Jesus then says, or the Master says, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of of the Lord. You see, the keys of the kingdom speaks about entrance into the kingdom or not. Now, the keys of the kingdom can also 
apply to the right understanding of the Word of God. To the Jews, to bind and to loose means to interpret the Torah or the Scriptures correctly. In other words, let's look at what the Lord is saying and what the doctrines are. Let's interpret it correctly so that we can obey it rightly. And once we know the spirit of what the Lord is saying, we can prohibit or we can permit, we can bind or we can loose. And so that's the context of Matthew chapter 18, verse 18, which we will get to soon enough, where the Lord says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, what this means is that we all have a responsibility to know God's word well. And especially if you're a leader or a teacher, you must teach God's ways correctly to others. You can swing to either extremes of legalism or excess liberty or licentiousness, and these would all be wrong. Look at what the Lord Jesus said to the religious of his days. He, he chided them and he said, look, you have the key of knowledge. Here's that word again, right? You have the things of God. You have the key down here. You have the authority. Now, you have taken away this key from everyone else. You did not enter in yourselves. And those who are wanting to enter, you have hindered them. Now, this is serious stuff, teachers and leaders, pastors, apostles, whatever you call yourself, right? We have the keys. We have to help them to know how to interpret it correctly. It's not an open door for everyone. There's an opening and there's a shutting. And we need to do our part to study well and to teach well. Of course, there's another understanding of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And this might be referring to the unlocking of the powers of heaven, where we now have not just physical authority on earth, but we also have spiritual authority of all kingdom powers. And this is to combat the powers of darkness. Yes, we do have authority over the demonic realm. And that's why the Lord said, you know, I will build my ecclesia, and the gates of Hades, the powers and principalities, will not be over, uh, will not be able to overcome it. But does it mean then we can use this one phrase and say, hey, you know, we can bind Satan as well as the demons, right? Um, well, I've done this teaching under section or session number 87 called Satan Bound, and I would, would love you to listen to that teaching. But let me just give you a few points down here in summary. As I have already shared here with you, right? Binding and loosing in this passage does not refer to that. See, if, if that was so, um, Paul would not have said that Satan is still the prince of the air as well as the god of this age, right? If we can bind, why don't we just bind him and that's it, you know? He's no longer the prince of this, the air and the god of this age. Um, so it does not talk about binding and loosing demons in this place. Um, the question is, if we can bind them, what, what, what do we do with loosing uh, demons? Um, that said, Satan and his demons are defeated and disarmed already. That's what we understand in Colossians chapter 2. Jesus defeated and disarmed all powers and principalities, and that's why they are no longer a threat to the kingdom. We do have authority. We can cast them out. But to bind, I don't think so, right? Instead, this is what we are supposed to be doing. Let's be sober, be vigilant, because the enemy is still prowling, walking around like a lion, 
Now, if you can bind, why don't you just bind him? Then he cannot walk anymore. So it does not make sense, you see. We are to resist him, we are told, so that he will flee from us. And very soon after that, in the next couple of verses, our lives make a lot of difference. Repent, stop sinning, live holy lives. Now, we are called to put on the armor of God. Now, please don't get all superstitious, you know, and stand in front of a mirror and say, I put on this piece, I put on that piece. You can put it all on, and if you don't live the life of Christ, it still means nothing. You are an open target for the enemy to still come get you. You have no authority whatsoever. Lift the kingdom. Lift the Christ. Lift the things of God in the ways of God. You have authority, and you can tell the enemy, don't disturb me. Go away, and he will flee from you. Okay? So leave Jesus and his angels to do the binding at the end of the age. Our part, just be obedient and be faithful. Live correctly, and don't give the enemy a foothold. So authorization. But here comes the question again. What use is this authority if you don't know who the authority is from? What is the use of this if you don't know what the authority is for? Right? Sometimes Christians love the power and authority talk, but we don't even know how to use them. We don't even know what it's for. We just think it's to command our, our wealth and our blessings and so that our bank accounts will be a, a much larger uh, bank account. It doesn't say that. What's, what's the use of authority if you're not moving on kingdom assignments and advancing the things of the kingdom? This is for the community of the king to move forward with power and authority. But you could ask the next question, who are the ones who will then move on kingdom assignments? Is it not those who would know the Christ? Who would have a revelation of who Jesus is as the King of kings and the Lord of lords? See, if you don't know him as your king, why would you want to be on kingdom assignment? Not only that, it will be for those who know who they are in Christ and in relation to Him, identified as people of the kingdom. Without such an identification, you will always be struggling with, I'm not good enough, you know, I'm not spiritual enough, I'm not talented enough, uh, you are called, I'm not called. We are all people of the Christ. So with that revelation and that identification, Right? If you have the right foundation, then you can move on the things of the kingdom on assignment. And that's where authorization makes sense. Without all these things, authority means nothing. The kingdom authority is given for us that we can move on a kingdom agenda for a kingdom assignment. It's not for our own little, little things or pursuits and our desires. We live for the Christ. And so four simple points. Revelation, identification, foundation, authorization. Let me end with the last verse. Matthew chapter 16, verse 20 is a very interesting one. And then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. And Whenever you read a verse like that, you're like, huh, what? what? What's this all about? After that, whoa, that revelation that, oh, you know, you are this and I'm going to build my church. You're going to have all power and all authority. Jesus says, wait, shh, hang on, don't tell anyone, huh? Okay. 
Peter and his friends must have had such an ah, such an high, such a high, and we call this like an awakening, a revelation, and they will be all ready to rush out and tell everyone. But Jesus knew better. They were not ready. They were not ready. They still had their own ideas of what the king and the kingdom is all about. And to move with such a misalignment would be dangerous, would be detrimental to Jesus' own kingdom assignment as well as the larger purposes of the kingdom. And this is what I want to say to us. You see, too many times, you know, we can get on a rah-rah, on a high, we get this awakening, and I'm thankful if you get this awakening. But after the awakening, we need to learn how to check our alignment. We need to wait for the right time so that the more aligned we are, the more prepared we are, the more ready we are. And when the right time comes, Jesus will say, this is the time you move on that assignment. I've seen and encountered too many with many, many good intentions, but very, very bad alignments. And so with their intentions, they go out there and they're spewing all kinds of you know, Christian uh, words and phrases and end up hurting so many people and they themselves hurt their own hearts and their own churches and their own communities also. And so here, let me just say one line here for you. If you have an awakening, I'm so thankful. But after an awakening comes the aligning. Check the aligning. And out of the aligning, you will then be able to move on the assigning that God would have given to you. After an awakening comes alignment. After a revelation comes a recalibration. And join us for the next teaching because we are going to see that play out big time where the disciples are concerned when they challenge Jesus on his own kingdom assignment. And so let's bring this teaching to a close. On this rock, what is that rock you're standing on, right? What is this rock that the church is built on? If it's just an organization, an institution, a good cause, hmm, you'll be all right. It's not going to go very far. On this rock, what's that foundation? You've got to have that revelation of who Jesus is the identification of who you are in relation to who Jesus is. When that is your foundation and my foundation and we come together aligned with Jesus and aligned with one another, it's going to be so rock solid. I don't care what comes against us. We will hang in there. We will stand firm. The gates of Hades will not prevail. The Lord has given us all power, all authority but may we be aligned with Him rightly and with one another so that we can move forward correctly to fulfill our assignments correctly. See, you and I will always have our own backdrops of Caesarea Philippi. Let me close by asking you the question that Jesus asked His disciple. Who do you say I am? Who is Jesus to you? Is he one of the many security systems that you have? Is there one of the idols that you worship, that you hold on to, that give you what you want when you ask for it? Or is he the king of the kingdom that you claim to be a part of? Who is Jesus really to you? 
You may have encountered him in a time of despair and he was a, he's a great friend to you. Maybe in a time of sickness and Jesus is a healer. You need a clarification and Jesus is a teacher. And he can be all these things and you needed, uh, you needed redemption and he saved you and all these things are wonderful, it's great. I'm not taking any one of these things from you. But if you haven't had a relationship or a revelation of Jesus as your king, would you pray for that right now? Would you allow me to pray for you so that when you have that revelation, may you have the identification to have the right foundation and then authorization is given to you for your assignment. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray for all listening in. For all that you have shown to us and given to us and you have been to us, we give you thanks and praise. But right now, Lord, right this moment, we boldly ask for a revelation of who you are. Abba Father, will you reveal your Son afresh to us? We want to see more of him. We want to know more of Jesus. We want to have every perspective and every aspect, Lord. We say whatever we know now, Lord, we are hungry. We are, we are desiring a lot more, Lord. We want to be greedy in this sense, Lord. We want all of Jesus, Lord. Otherwise, nothing else makes sense. Holy Spirit, you are the Spirit of the Christ. Be that Spirit of wisdom and of revelation for all of us. And as you do that, Lord, I pray, revelation upon each one, identification so that we know who we are, O oh Lord. Foundation, Lord, on this rock, build up your church, Lord. Send forth your kingdom people with the authorization that you've given to all of us. And we thank you, Lord, that your kingdom will keep going forward. And we thank you that we have a part to play and that you count us worthy to serve you, the Christ, the Messiah, the King. And all, all the gates of hell, Lord, will not prevail against us because we will push forward knowing that you will fight every battle for us. And so we thank you, we praise you, Lord. All glory, all majesty, and all honour belong to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining me for another session of Kingdom 101. I hope that this has helped you, blessed you, encouraged you, share with someone so that they will know Jesus as their Christ too. And so this is Hanson. Until the next Kingdom session and the next Kingdom teaching, I'm signing out and wishing you a blessed, blessed day and a blessed time ahead. God bless you.